You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Harris, here with a uh, first-time guest on the program, Seth Gruber. Seth actually has been, um, I don't know how we got connected, but he's been sending me encouraging texts for quite some time, and uh, I appreciate his ministry. He's a speaker. His podcast is unaborted, and he has a new organization called the White Rose Resistance. You can find out more about that at thewhiterose.life, thewhiterose.life, or you can go to Seth Gruber. Dot com. That's Gruber with an ER at the end. And, uh, and you can check out some of his work there. And it's mostly on the pro-life movement. So uh, thank you very much, Seth, for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, John. Th- thank you, brother. I- I've been a longtime fan. I think you are the uh, Ezekiel Watchman, son of Issachar, um, for the fault lines in the church today. And I, I only hope and pray that your podcast and channel uh, quadruples its impact and reach because I haven't found anywhere quite the level of moral, spiritual, and historical clarity on these culture wars, which are really just spiritual wars, um, than your voice. And so grateful for you, brother. So thank oh, you for the invitation. It. Yeah, that's very nice of you to say, Seth. I, I didn't pay him to say that either. So uh, <laughs> it's very, very kind when it's freely given like that. Um, well, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on uh, with the church right now and the evangelical church in particular. Um, and we can see where this goes. Maybe we'll get into other arenas, but as it relates to this overturn of Roe v. Wade, because um, even I was surprised I've been tracking evangelicalism for the last few years and written now, you know, two books trying to track kind of where evangelicalism's yeah. at. And even I was thinking as compromised as I've seen evangelical elites be, I thought, man, they're going to celebrate when Roe v. Wade's overturned. Like, that's going to be a really big moment for everyone. Right, right, right. And I was shocked um, to see how uh, many evangelical elites were very quick to jump on Nicholas Sandman. They were very quick to yep, jump on the yep. whole George Floyd issue, very quick to jump on right. uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. We all remember that. Roe v. Wade's overturned. And it's almost crickets out there. Um, explain yep. this to me. What What's going on? Why do you think yeah. it was a lackluster kind of response? Uh, not everyone, but a lot of people. And yeah. what's hampering evangelicals on the pro-life yeah. issue? Yeah, yeah, that's good, John. That's so, there's so many uh, ways we could take that question, but I, I appreciate your you blowing the trumpet. You know, when you, were, when you were asking those questions, John, the first thing I thought of was this line attributed to Martin Luther. 
Uh, so I'll have to say attributed, and you may be familiar with it, but it, it, it has become more and more true in today's culture wars and in the fault lines in the church. And so I just want to sort of open up the conversation sharing it. Uh, attributedly, he once said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However, boldly, I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on every other battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. And there's been a lot of flinching happening in American pulpits and from pastors and Christian institutions, and well, really since you and I would probably say since the sexual revolution, but particularly in the last 10 years or so. And nowhere has that flinching, or let's say that abdication, been more disgraceful and more disappointing than on what is the historical equivalent of the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, Emancipation frees all the slaves, but I'm talking about just the, the cultural significance of Roe v. Wade getting overturned is up there with something like that. 2022 is going to go down as one of the most historically, culturally significant years in American political history. And you had not just a little bit more attention to BLM Incorporated, Summer of Love, the mostly peaceful protests, but like a hundredfold to incidents that oftentimes, as you know, John, later showed to be completely the wrong take from the get-go, smearing people like Nicholas Sandman as a racist, smearing people like Kyle Rittenhouse as a white supremacist. Remember the, the Gospel Coalition hit piece on that or the, or the tweet or the Facebook yep. post? And, and so all this attention to what? To systemic racism. Okay, that's fine. We can talk about systemic racism. The greatest example of systemic racism is abortion. Planned Parenthood lynches more unarmed Black lives in the womb every two weeks than the KKK lynched in a century. You want to talk about Black lives mattering? Okay, all right. If you're a Christian, then you believe that human beings are created in the image of God and that Christ, the prenatal deity, the greatest former fetus to have ever existed was fully God and fully human, not at the moment of birth, but at the moment of conception. And so to treat unborn children, therefore unborn Christ, as anything less than full persons is actually a Christological heresy, John, because it would maintain that Christ was at some point fully God, but not fully human, and therefore not deserving of the protections therein when he was in his mother's womb. And therefore, every other baby is also created in the image of that prenatal Christ from the moment of conception. And yet it's virtual silence from the American pulpit. It's, it's maybe one little tweet and wink to the pro-life movement from Rick Warren or Russell Moore or Ed Stetzer. And then they're on with their attention showed alleged cases of systemic racism. A literal example of systemic racism with abortion is is disgraceful yeah well um i agree with you that's it, it's it's baffling because abortion and, and i thought this was the common evangelical opinion of abortion it, it's the greatest moral travesty to ever have taken place in the united states the the roe v wade decision which enshrined it um, I mean, right. if you want to compare body count, there is no comparison between that and anything else that's taken place in our country. And uh, you can combine all the wars, you know, that have been fought and it that's still right. doesn't compare. And yet, uh, I don't know. I, I just thought, I mean, I, I was watching some reactions from some big evangelical leaders 
at church, I, I actually put out a little um, montage or, or just clips of some of these guys. Yes, that was and well done. It's not even as bad as it, I mean, the clips show a part of it, but I'll like, give you one example. Um, I was looking at uh, a church in Memphis, Tennessee, um, a big mega church there. Uh, and the pastor gets up and he has this this moment of praise for how great the choir sung and this moment of That's praise. Right. I saw that. Did you see that? Okay. Yes. And, yeah. and then he gets to Roe v. Wade and his whole countenance changed and he's like doom and gloom. It's like, yeah, like, he we're sounded all the... depressed. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was just weird to me. Um, and, yeah. and there were similar things, you know, when I, and I was just going to websites, just seeing what big pastors were doing. And I thought it would be a big JD celebration. Yeah. 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 JD's was, was absolutely disappointing. Oh yeah. JD Greer's. Yeah. 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 That, that was unusual too. It was and in the same breath. He had to talk about these other issues of poverty. Yep. It, it's kind of like they immediately, even the ones that are most ardently pro-life had to make a jump immediately from, and now who's going to care for these women? Ha 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 church. Yep. Like, yeah, you know, that's that, right. And yep. it's like, I understand that. Like, that's why we have crisis pregnancies. It's why we adopt. It's, but yep. like, why wasn't there a moment of celebration? I mean, murder yep. has been now. That's right. Um, how many so states a lot is of it? this, John? Yeah, a lot of this, John, I think gets down to the fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be pro-life. Because what 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 and you understand this, you understand this conflict and and, and uh, disagreement very well. The the left wing or the the, you know, apolitical, neither left nor right. However, you have a lot to say bashing your right wing and hardly anything to say about bashing your left wing. Anyways, you know, the kind of people I'm talking about that they always try to lump in these other issues into pro-life that you're not really pro-life unless you're what, unless you're doing something about poverty, unless you're doing something about the orphans, unless you're doing something about fighting sex trafficking, unless you're doing something about uh, Medicare for all or making healthcare a human right. And they be, begin to lump in all these other issues. And so it kind of gives away the game, doesn't it, John? It kind of shows that these people, to quote Hadley Arcus, phenomenal nat natural law scholar who helped craft legislation in regards to the Born Alive Infant Protection Act under Bush, when he realized that so many of those Republicans that he thought were on his side for protecting the unborn, when they all disappeared and all of his allies were gone, he had this powerful line, John, and I think it applies perfectly to this. He says, we could not help but wonder if, if, our, if our friends, quote unquote, weren't truly possessed of a lively sense that there were real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Because mm -hmm. if you were possessed of that lively sense, John, and, and you're like me and you actually, you have, to, you have to look at the photos of mutilated children every day. And, and you actually have to contend with exposing the deeds of darkness to quote Ephesians 5.11. I think, I think they would live a little differently. It, it, so for, for them, pro-life is so out there and they have never hardly in their personal life done anything to stand, stand against the genocide of baby image bearers. And so they just see the term pro-life and they go, well, we can't, we can't, you know, exclude that term to one class of human beings. I mean, the phrase is pro-life, John. It's not pro-unborn lives. So therefore, right. you have to be for all lives. And then they use that to sort of inject their social justice agenda. And right. so the way that you can expose this, John, is and, you know, hat off to my mentor, Scott Klusendorf, who, who asked great questions like, so is the American Cancer Society not truly anti-cancer because they're not seeking to solve every other form of disease? Actually, let's use BLM as the perfect example, John. Remember J.D. Greer during BLM? He didn't like people saying all lives matter. 
And he went out of his way to make the to make the point that it is specifically black lives right now that are being targeted. John, come on, stop saying all lives matter. We need to show a disproportionate amount of time and interest on the class of human beings whose lives are at risk, whose lives are being threatened. And I had debated uh, Michael Austin. You may have heard of him. He's a professor somewhere. I forget the university, but, you know, big Karen Swallow Pryor fan, big, big anti-gun guy. And but he says he's pro-life. And we had a, de- a debate at, over at Hank Hanegraaff's thing, uh, Christian Research Publication Journal. And we did a debate on the podcast versus whole life versus pro-life. And, and I exposed him for the same thing that J.D. Greer does. He, he wrote an article in um, uh, during the BLM times. This was June 11th in Psychology Today. And he, he far from criticizing Black Lives Matter for only focusing on Black lives that are allegedly being systemically discriminated against in our criminal justice system, he defended them by saying, quote, when someone says Black Lives Matter, that in no way logically implies that other lives don't also matter. So him and J.D. Greer both making these arguments that, hey, hey, we don't mean that other issues don't matter. We're just saying it's this class of victims that are currently being discriminated against, to which you and I would go, uh-huh, yeah, now do unborn children. Now do unborn children. But, so they're not truly with us. That, that's my, that, I can't come away with any other hot take on that, John, than that that they're not possessed of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. You have three and a half percent of the American public are black women of childbearing age, and they obtain between 37 and 40 percent of the annual abortions, fulfilling Margaret Sanger's dream when she wrote in The Negro Project, the goal of the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stalks, those human weeds, which threatened the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization, which fulfilled the dream of her board member, Lothrop Stoddard, who wrote a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, who spoke at Sanger's Population Conference in New York after having already run a concentration camp in German-controlled Southwest Africa, where he starved, experimented on, and murdered Native Africans. This is Margaret Sanger's legacy. So if we want to talk about focusing on the specific victim class that is currently being targeted, let's talk about Black unborn children, and let's talk about all unborn children. But their, their, their hip- hypocritical, different treatment of these issues, to me, John, gives away the game. Yeah, it is fascinating to think that you know, the police are just, and, and I think it's a historically kind of ten- tenuous, it's not even tenuous, it's just false, but it's a, it's a bad argument, but they, they try to trace the police back to these uh, slave patrols, and that's why yeah. you know it's still ingrained in the policing of the United States or something, and yet they can't see with Planned Parenthood uh, a much more clear uh, line uh, coming from the founder to even the work that they're doing pre- in present day. Um one yep. of the things, though, that I just thought of, and it, it stems back to a sort of an impromptu debate I was having two weeks ago, right after this this ruling came down, I was at a Bible study. Um, I do some campus ministry. We have uh, culinary institutes near us. And there was a gentleman who came um, who claims to be a Christian, uh, goes to uh, a, a church in the local area. It's a, it's a more of a, it's a black church. He actually drives his pastor, apparently. Um, he was telling us every morning to work and stuff. And he, and, and this is something, he's just one example, but I've, I've seen, I've gotten this flavor from other kind of um, eth- ethnic churches like that, or uh, black churches, where he thought, you know, he, he was totally against the ruling, thought this is a woman's body. I mean, just all the, the liberal arguments, but yet then, I mean, he believes the Bible, he be- you know, believes um, that Jesus is the only way. I mean, so many things that we could probably say we, we share in common. Um, how widespread is that 
in the black community. And, and why is that? Why is it that what you just said about Margaret Sanger and about the disproportionate amount of black mothers that um, are going to these clinics? Why is it that the churches in those communities don't seem to understand? Uh, maybe some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Yeah. Well, a lot of black, uh, these black charismatic churches, John, as you know, many of them, if not the majority are, are pretty left wing. Uh, are pretty in bed with right. the Democrat Party. You've got some rare churches like Upper Room Church of God in Christ in Raleigh, North Carolina. Check them out sometime. My friend, uh, the, uh, Pastor John Amanchukwu, is a ministry partner and uh, the youth pastor over there. And uh, and him and his father-in-law, fiery, charismatic, conservative preachers over there, blasting, saying you're an abortion from the pulpit, informing their people, you know, because our people suffer for lack of knowledge and they're making sure mm -hmm. that that's not a reality in their congregation. But, but I mean, it's the, it's the exception, right? A black charismatic church that's pro-life and fired up for things that the, the, the righteous policies that God would actually, that Jesus would actually support um, is pretty rare. And, and so I think this gets down to a, a lot of the success of the Democrat party and the left-wing agenda in smearing their political opponents as racist and, and, and redefining their, their policy um, pursuits as, as the, uh, you know, we're the party, of the little guy, right? That's what the Democrat party always said that, that we want to help those who are impoverished and are having a hard time. Give them, just give them a little lift up, you know, help them pull themselves up a little bit. Uh, but of course it usually just ends up, well, if it's the great society act, you just incentivize fatherlessness, you right. get people in the government teat, and then they actually get comfortable with, with not working hard enough. Well, you know, all these conversations, but, but I, I will, I will piggyback up what you said, the amount of ignorance not just in the American public, but in black churches regarding Sanger's legacy is astounding. She wrote a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble with, as a part of her Negro pod project. And part of the goal, John, was to get black ministers involved, to, to, to use black faces to represent the agenda of the American Birth Control League before it was renamed Planned Parenthood so that, so that other black people would feel more comfortable with the agenda. And she said in her letter, we do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And that's like the most fiery line from that letter. But then she says to Dr. Clarence Gamble, she says, and the black minister is the one who can straighten that idea out if it occurs to any more of his rebellious members. Wow. <laughs> and, and Sanger once said regarding birth control, John, she said, eugenics, without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands it is at the mercy of the rising streams of the unfit <laughs> so even before the american birth control league was pushing abortion john they were the, the uh was yeah birth control was not an end in and of itself it was central to eugenic goals and of course sanger hobnobbed with all the founders of the american eugenic society who influenced right. nazi legislation in germany conversation for another time so the but but when i say that from pulpits john you should see people's faces they're like oh <laughs> like during the headlights yeah. never heard it before and so this goes back to of course the pulpits right so i, I think we we can't appropriately lay much of the moral rot and loss in the culture wars in America at the feet of the pulpit. Um, you know, the, that great line to Tocqueville when he visited America, she, he looked for the greatness of America in all these places. Where was it? Where was it? It wasn't in her, her Congress. It wasn't in her beautiful rivers. It wasn't here. It wasn't here. It was in her pulpits ablaze with righteousness. And America is great because she is good. And if she ceases to be uh, uh, good, she'll cease to be great. Uh, and what made us good? A Judeo-Christian worldview, the image of God, Imago Dei. Uh, natural rights of man. And so if, if you don't have the right to life for all human beings, 
then you actually don't have the right to life for any human beings. It's in the small things that the rot grows. And that's why the left has moved so slowly in their culture and political warfare, lest the good people recognize the agenda and wake up too soon. So you've got to move slowly. And now we're, we're starting to experience like bankruptcy, things happen gradually, then suddenly. Yeah, that's good. Um, let me throw something out there. I haven't said on the podcast, but I, I, I want to get your take on it. And I've, I've just had this suspicion. Like it used to be years ago, someone told me when, when an evangelical leader starts getting soft on homosexuality, look up who their kids are <laughs> because wow. they might have a gay kid, right? They might, there, there might be, or a grandkid or something. And there's a reason that there mm. there's personal motives. Well, I had this thought, especially, you know, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, I wondered how many evangelicals uh, or Christians, just broadly speaking, um, are getting abortions. Um, I was shocked mm. when, when I lived in Lynchburg, Liberty University, right? It was right there. Right. And there's not a Planned Parenthood in Lynchburg, but there is in Roanoke and Charlottesville, I believe, which are only like, you know, an hour, hour and 15 minutes drives. Um, and the local crisis pregnancy representative did, did a whole presentation uh, to, to my, my wife's Bible study or, and told them essentially that the most, the people they counsel are students at Liberty university that, yeah. um, and, and sometimes people who have had abortions and oftentimes at the bequest of their mother who doesn't want them right. to ruin their lives. And, and I'm just thinking this is a student at Liberty. Like their parents are paying for them to go to Christian school. And yet the mother's coming in and say, so make sense of this yep. for me. I mean, is this a, how big of a problem is this? Does that possibly, is, is that a, a motivating factor for why some Christian leaders seem to be kind of compromised on this or sheepish about approaching it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I was writing something down here because you made me think of something too. I think, I think there may be two answers. I think one of them could be that, that you have a history of abortion, you have post-abortion uh, trauma in that individual's life or someone in their family. Um, and the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch, named after Alan Guttmacher, the former president of Planned Parenthood in the 70s, <laughs> uh, who, by the way, in his book, Life in the Making on page three, John, just as a point of interest, admitted that everyone knows that human life begins at conception. He says on page three, he says, uh, it, it, this all seems so, regarding when human life begins, he says, this all seems so simple and evident that it's hard to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge. Uh, and that was from the 70s. Uh, anyways, Alan Guttmacher, Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood's research arm, uh, they have done a lot of the data. And of course, I always try to cite the other side's data when I can. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's over 30% of women who obtain abortions identify as being uh, Protestant or Catholic. Actually, if you, if you combine both Protestant and Catholic, you're upwards of 40%. And so, uh, and, so, and then, uh, what is it? Um, Barna has done some as well. Uh, and I think it's like about one in, uh, one in four women even in your church. And so women move silently from the pews to the abortion center and the shepherds have nothing to say. Uh, when I was starting out my pro-life speaking career, John, uh, here was the number one response I got from most local pastors when I tried to get speaking opportunities. Uh, not, not because, oh, you, you know, I just want to blow, grow my platform and you do a good job, pastor. No, because these pastors weren't talking about it from the pulpit. They weren't preaching on it. And here was the first uh, pushback I got in my early 20s when I started speaking. Seth, um, we're pro-life, of course, uh, but so now they're going to disqualify everything. But, um, you know, we don't want to shame or condemn women in our congregations who have had abortions. Um, you know, we want to show them the love of Christ. As, as my colleague, Mike Spencer says, pastor's silence on abortion does not spare his men and women hurt. It spares them healing. 
In fact, the very reality that you post a board of men and women in your congregation is actually the very reason you should use that as a soapbox opportunity to not just speak truth, but to put the gospel on blast in a way that maybe they've never heard it before, that their heart has to be reminded of the evil act they participated in. But like King David, who arranged the death of an innocent human being to hide and cover up his sexual sin, there's also grace for you. And you can be called a man or woman after God's own heart. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that there, there could be abortion stories in the, in the families of the still silent shepherds. But here, and this got to your question earlier, John, about help us make sense of this stuff. Like, why is there so much silence? What's with the hypocrisy? I think the other reason is this. I think it's, to quote my friend, Dr. Owen Strand, it's the idol of cultural respectability. The idol of cultural respectability. And I think, unfortunately, John, that that is more of an answer than post-abortion trauma in the lives of these people that we would, we would expect to be more vocal. Um, they want a place at the table, John. They, they want Christianity to look hip and cool and attractive, but, but rather than preaching the full counsel of God and leaving the results to God, they need to contrive the situation uh, in the context in which Christianity is presented. And so, hey, that's why we couldn't get on board with Trump, John, because he was, he was a meanie. And, and if I voted for him, I would actually harm my Christian witness. Boy, did, boy, did we hear a lot of that in 2020. Yeah. I had a friend text me that on the day of the election, I was preaching at my, my home church, Godspeed Calvary Chapel, November 1st, two days before the national election on life. And I was trying to get my friends to make sure they voted um, for who, who I was proven right was the most pro-life president in American history. And my friend said, I can't, Seth, because I care so much about my witness the idol mm. of cultural respectability. You want a place at the table. And here's how you expose this, John. I asked them, I, I said, hey, buddy, you know that there's a lot of pagans, secularists, and deists who are not believers who are pro-life. There's a, a lot of the church doesn't understand this. There are a whole bunch of fired up pro-life people who are not Christians, who are not born again. So guess what? By not voting for the most pro-life president in American history, you're harming your Christian witness to those groups of people who don't see you as putting flesh on your Christian faith and ideas. Because if you believed what you said you believed, that your savior was fully God and fully human at the moment of conception, and every other baby is as well, then you'd be more politically involved than anyone else I know if you thought that this was a genocide. And so your political abdication is harming your Christian witness, quote unquote, with those groups of people. It's almost as if, John, we shouldn't be concerned about contriving our witness, but being faithful to preach grace and truth and leave the results to God. And so I think this idol of cultural respectability is actually more of a answer to your question than merely post-abortion trauma in the lives of Christians. And we can get into people like, you know, yeah. um, Tim Keller, who I think is actually, I think is, is the central example of this rotten evangelicalism um more more than stetzer more than greer really more more than rick warren i'm happy to dive into that but um uh, but i think it, i think that is more of an answer is to their silence yeah well why don't we dive into that so what and that's good i mean i i think you're that's one of the things that seems a mainstay to me in evangelicalism is the leaders want to a seat at the table and they don't realize it's not a table it's a gun pointing at them it, you know, <laughs> right. it's just like <laughs> they're the last to be eaten yeah yeah we let's put the ram's blood on our door so the angel of death passes over but it's too late um so you have guys well, like now they're painting the rainbow on their door john <laughs> and, and hoping that the spirit of the age will pass over yeah it, it's weird or or they have to do this thing i saw carl truman kind of did this where it's like 
let's stand against the gay, the LGBT movement. By the way, we hate racism. It's like, what, well, what? <laughs> like they have to say it in right. the same breath so that, yeah, yeah, like you can, you know, remember that time when we were with you on BLM, you know, please don't yeah, come for us right. now. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah it, it's a mass uh, moving away from orthodoxy. And uh, you Absolutely. mentioned Tim Keller. I know there's a number. Maybe you can just go through a list. I mean, wh- who are some of the people that are undermining pro-life um, thinking and evangelicalism? Yeah. And then, and and what are, I mean, Tim, I'm kind of intrigued. What What is Tim Keller doing that's so dangerous as opposed to Stetzer or? Well, I think I think he's the fountainhead from which the rot flows. That's what I think, John. And and I and 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 I'll say I I, I'm not nearly the watchman on SJW as you are. I mean, you're like in a higher echelon that's untouchable, John. And that's why I love your podcast so much. But but I've done a decent enough research. I did an episode called "The Shepherd Who Became Wolves." Mm -hmm. So I guess trans trans speciesism. (laughs) Uh, And we went through some of these people. Uh, and I've done full treatments of Tim Keller, not to toot my own horn, but just to mention uh, a, probably a friend of both of ours, Dr. Owen Strand. When we were at a Vody Bauckham conference, we hosted at our home church, Godspeed Calvary Chapel. And I did my takedown on Keller. Dr. Owen said, I've never heard a takedown like Keller like that before. Uh, and so I, I've really done my research. And then Bodhi actually, to his benefit, defended me. He said, some of you were uncomfortable later when you heard someone going after Keller. Um, and, and then he said, but these are actually the people we need to call out and do it right. That's so, excellent. And That's so, awesome to hear. Yeah, that, that, well, that was really sweet to me because Bodhi's such a hero of mine. But so anyway, so he, here's, the, here's the take on Keller. I mean, I mean, the guy started the TGC, right? I mean, here was right after Roe, right? Now isn't the time for the church to beat its chest in celebration of a victory in the culture war. This is a moment for us to step up in love, right? And as soon as I read that, Jen, I was thinking like, you know, the prophets of Elijah, you know, who are like saying, Where, where's, your, where's your God? Is he taking a dump? Like, is he constipated? Like, is he not feeling like, yeah. And, and so it, it, it's like, providentially, it seems that God chose to use mean tweets over winsomeness to overturn Roe versus Wade. That's actually, and I know a, that's that, a good I, line. Yeah. <laughs> I know that makes the Ed Stetzers and the Michael Austins and the Karen Swallow Priors and the Rick Warrens and the Brian Brodersons uh, and the JD Greers and the David Platts. I know that makes them very uncomfortable. They don't really know where to place that within their sort of historical theology, but he did. God chose to use mean tweets over winsomeness. And remember, Dobbs gets upheld with 6-3, John. But Roe gets overturned with 5-4, mm. which means without one of Trump's three Supreme Court justices, Roe doesn't get overturned and the high places don't begin to crumble. And we can't laugh at these pagan deities and say, I guess they're taking a dump. Uh, I'm sorry, if you have a problem with that kind of funny, like theological, like, like p- discourse, then take it up with Elijah and the prophets. So, um, so Tim Keller, I think it was so much of the fountainhead where this rock comes from, John. And, and I, I rewrote the intro to my talk at Jack Hibb, my my, one of my earthly heroes uh, church in September of 2020 for his comeback California conference. It was my first speaking gig since the shutdowns, right? Cause I'm sure you had all your speaking canceled from March yeah. through at least August or September. So that was my first one back at on the stage. And I rewrote the intro to my talk the night before, because the night before this September comeback California conference at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, John uh, Keller put his, his now infamous Facebook post up, which I know you know about. And here's what he said. He said um, uh, that when it comes to voting, taking, oh, he said, the Bible does not tell me the best way to decrease abortion, to end abortion or decrease abortions in this country. Uh, The various political parties offer a potpourri of positions on these and many, many other issues, most of which the Bible does not speak to directly. This means when it comes to voting, taking political positions and determining alliances, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, 
every Christian must vote for X or no Christian can vote for X. Yes, I memorized the stupid Facebook post. You got so I was going to ask if you had a photographic memory. You, you seem to have a lot committed. To no, I, I just I just exercise my memory like like we exercise our muscles. Um, okay. I wish I wish I had photographic memory. So that was Keller's hot take, right? So when it comes to voting, voting, taking political positions and determining alliances, the Christian has liberty of conscience. In other words, John. God does not care how you vote. And so right. no one had been quite so clear as Keller, I think, on this question of political engagement, specifically on the issue of abortion. And here's where the hypocrisy rears its ugly head. And here's what I'm going to actually call John's soft bigotry, because hard bigotry would be the full blown denial of the personhood of unborn children. Right. Full blown hard bigotry would be the pro-abortion position. They're untermensch. They're Lebens und Lebens. They're life unworthy of life. They're not persons. What would be a soft bigotry? Tim freaking Keller. I'm sorry that Tim Keller represents the soft bigotry towards the unborn, that they're human beings, but you see they're not intrinsically valuable enough to warrant political protection. And, and the way that Keller exposes himself is in a New York Times opinion editorial that you're probably familiar with called How Do Christians Fit Into a Two-Party System? Yep. They don't. That's the title of it. Now, you and I would say, of course, of course, Christians don't hmm. fit perfectly because we're of another kingdom. We're aliens. We're passing through. Like, of course, duh. Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. However, he is political because he's the king. He's ruling and reigning. And oh, and by the way, he's coming back. So he is political in that sense. But of course, he's not a Republican or a Democrat. Anyway, so he's, he, he begins with this inarguable premise that he knows he can get everyone to get on board with. And then he begins to shift in this article. And I encourage your listeners um, to go read this, John. How do Christians fit into a two-party system they don't? It is incredibly telling about the, the moral depravity from which Keller speaks. In this piece, he says, here, I'm going to quote to you. He says, Christians cannot pretend that they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. And now here, John, he's going to start blasting apolitical Christians during slavery. He says, American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery, because that was what we would now call getting political, were actually supporting slavery by doing so. And listen to this line, John, to not be political is to be political. That sounds like Bonhoeffer. Silence in mm -hmm. the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. It sounds like the Bonhoeffer coming out in him, except he doesn't believe unborn children have the same intrinsic dignity as the born black man from the 1850s. Because according to him, if you were apolitical, if you just didn't speak out against slavery, he says that was supporting slavery by doing so. And so my question, John, would be this. Hey, Mr. Keller, quick question for you. Here's a historical question. Wouldn't that then mean that Christians who were full-blown in bed with the Democrat Party in 1850, if, if, if being apolitical in the 1850 made you supporting the social status quo, wouldn't voting for Democrats in the 1850 make you significantly more involved in injustice by promoting the very party committed to lynching and enslaving African-Americans? Of course it would. But then now bait and switch, abortion, far from saying that being apolitical makes you involved in injustice, he says you have liberty of conscience to vote for the same party today, John, that believes the same thing that that party believed in 1850, that not all humans are persons. 
and they get to decide which humans are persons and which aren't ironically or not ironically john by using basically the same arguments to dehumanize the unborn that they did to dehumanize the black man and then he wraps up in this piece here he says racism is a sin violating the second of the two greatest commandments of jesus to love your neighbor the biblical commands to lift up the poor and defend the rights of the oppressed are moral imperatives for believers. For individual Christians to speak out against egregious violations of these moral requirements is not optional. So, so, so what's the difference then between unborn children that Tim Keller says you can vote to lynch because I guess your whole life, quote unquote, and the black man and woman for whom, for whom apathy and apoliticalness was itself sin. So this, now you're getting down to the soft bigotry here, John. He doesn't view the unborn child as intrinsically valuable enough to warrant political protection, or else he would never say you could vote for the party and politicians sworn to uphold today's lynchings, today's genocide, and today's slavery. Well, what, and, and people say, Seth, you can't compare the two. Really? With slavery, you had an industry that profited in the billions by severing children from their parents. With abortion, you have an industry that profits in the billions by severing children from their parents. And they use the same arguments. And I just, I just talked about this at a church in, in Bakersfield the other day. And I think we need to say this so the church is very clear that we're actually facing the same Leviathan, the same beast, the same spirit of the age, who's just found a new victim class, John, that they've denied personhood to. So there's the argument from ownership. This slave slash baby is my property slash body. There's the argument from privacy. No one is forcing you to have slaves slash abortions, John. There's the argument from superseding rights. My property slash bodily autonomy rights uh, come before the slave slash fetuses. There's the argument from inevitability. Uh, slavery slash abortion has been around for thousands of years. It's never going away. Might as well keep it safe and legal. There's the argument from pseudoscience. Well, you know, John, slaves slash fetuses aren't real people. They're not like us. Just look at them. They're so different. Therefore, we are human and they are not. But we, we, we can say that that's not science. That sounds like Gnostic body self-dualism that you're slapping the label of science onto. There's the argument from socioeconomics. If slavery slash abortion ends, most of these slaves slash babies will end up on the street without a job. So it's better to kill them. There's the argument from faux compassion, which says the same thing. The world can be a cruel place. It's better to keep them enslaved slash kill them. And then lastly, there's the argument from the assumed hypocrisy of the other side, right? You say you want to live with freed blacks slash uh, uh, un, uh, unborn or unborn babies, but um, uh, but you're not, you don't want to, or you say you want to end slavery slash abortion, but you don't want to live with freed blacks slash adopt the babies yourself. The other side just become hip hypocrites because they're not living sort of as, as, as your opponents think that they should be. And so I could go on and on and on, but my point is this, it's the same beast, it's the same agenda, and not ironically, it's also it's also wiping out more black people than slavery and the racists could have ever dreamed of doing. Well, yeah, and that, that's an interesting. I haven't heard uh, an extensive uh, tit for tat like that comparing the two. But in the case of abortion, it's actually much worse, really, if you think about it, because it's worse to be murdered than it's, it's like, it, yeah. Right. I mean, murder is such a I mean, biblically speaking, of course, I mean, you, if you're enslaved, you have your life still. If you're murdered, you're, it's done. It's game over. And. That's and, and for Keller to take such a cavalier approach to today's um, more heinous uh, injustice is very telling. And, and that's, that's a right. that's a very yep. good observation. I hadn't really made. Well, that and on top of that, John, you've read about his public defense of his registration as a Democrat, right? He, yes. You can go read a piece on Tim Keller defending why he's registered as a Democrat. And I in have. short, his argument is this, John. 
it's more effective. I'm just being winsome. I'm just being winsome. It's just, it's more effective this way because basically New York is so blue. It's gone to the dogs. There's no hope. So I'm just going to try to kind of uh, manage the decline of Western civilization uh, by being somewhat of a, a Democrat moderate. Of course, then we would then say, so you would have done the same thing in 1850, huh? And he'd be like, oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't care how blue a state was. I wouldn't care how Democrat a state was. I would have been blasting the Republican Party from the pulpit because I would have understood that that was the only political party that presented us a viable opportunity right. to protect our black image bearers. Now do unborn children, Tim. Now do unborn children. And then lastly, to finally put the lid on Keller, John, he's done this whole... Um, He's, he, he once publicly defended his, and this is interesting, most people haven't found this. Uh, if you've ever done research on Tim Keller preaching on abortion, you, you probably find that there is nothing. Uh, I've, I've tried it, Tim Keller abortion sermons, unborn children, that you cannot find it. There is no really? sermon on how abortion is child sacrifice, that Satan doesn't care the name of the God you call him. So it was Moloch then, and it's it's, it's self-education money and career well-being today. There, no, there's no like theological biblical treatment of abortion in a full-length sermon from Keller from the pulpit. I would love to be proved wrong. Please, someone go do the research and prove me wrong. But Keller once finally, finally defended his still silent shepherd approach to the slaughter of the lambs. And it, this was covered by someone in a piece in, Christi in Christianity Today in 1999 called Religionless Spirituality. And Keller essentially explains why it's good to not preach on abortion from the pulpit, John. And, 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 and so I'll go to my conclusion and then I'll give you the bulk of it. According to Keller, clerical silence or political neutrality in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism. That's what Keller believes, that clerical silence or political neutrality in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable and beautiful means of evangelism. That's the only conclusion takeaway you yeah. can get from what I'm about to tell you, John. So from this piece, this is what Keller says. And so the writer's quoting him. Keller says, we will be careful with the order in which we communicate the parts of the faith. Pushing moral behaviors before we lift up Christ is religion. The church today is calling people to God with the tone of voice that seems to confirm their worst fears. Religion has always been outside in. If I behave out here in all these ways, then I will have God's blessing and love inside. But the gospel is inside out. If I know the blessing and grace of God inside, then I can behave out here in all these ways. A woman who had been attending our church for several months came to see me. This is Keller writing. Do you think abortion is wrong? She asked. I said that I did. I'm coming to see now that maybe there is something wrong with it, this woman replied, now that I've become a Christian here and have started studying the faith in the classes. Back to Keller. As we spoke, I discovered that she was an Ivy League graduate, a lawyer, a longtime Manhattan resident, and an active member of the ACLU. She volunteered that she had experienced three abortions. Pause. Notice the way that Keller describes the dismemberment of a person. She had experienced three abortions. John, women don't experience abortions. Babies yeah. experience abortions. Abortions right. are not performed on women. They're performed on babies and the vaginal canal is in the way. Uh, she said, she said, I want you to know, she said that if I had seen, this is the key. If I had seen any literature or reference to the pro-life movement, I would not have stayed through the first service, but I did stay oh, and I goodness. found faith in Christ. If abortion is wrong, she says, John, you should certainly speak out against it. But I'm glad about the order in which you did it. And then Keller says, this woman had her faith incubated into birth, interesting analogy, in our Sunday services. <laughs> <laughs> in worship, we center on the question, what is truth? And the one who had the audacity to say, I am the truth. This is the big issue for postmodern people, and it's hard to swallow. Nothing is more subversive and prophetic than to say truth has become a real person. And which, to which I would say, Keller, and when did truth become a real person? 
oh, right, at the moment of conception. Jesus calls both younger brothers and elder brothers to come into the Father's arms. He calls the church to grasp the gospel for ourselves and share it with those who did desperately seeking true spirituality. Okay, so, so Keller goes on. But basically, according to Keller, that's why it's really good to not preach against child sacrifice from the pulpit, John. Because if he does, and I actually had pastors tell me this back to my early speaking career, John. They said, Seth, um, oh, no, what if, what if we have a non-believer who's visiting church for the first time? And it happens that they visit when you, I've had this said verbatim, John, and it happens that they visit when you preach and they hear you preaching on abortion. And then their worst fears are confirmed that this is just another GOP church that's prostituted their evangelistic uh, duties to the Republican party or to a political ideology. Oh, oh, screw these Christians. I knew they were just Republican old men who wanted to control women's bodies. And so the, the possibility of offense becomes the the reason for why they won't address it from the pulpit that's exactly what keller's saying here john he, he, he's saying uh, she, he's lifting this woman up as an example he's saying isn't this beautiful the order in which we communicated the parts of the faith because she, you know she told me john she told me that if i had preached abortion from the pulpit or it was in our literature she wouldn't have come back so so unborn children become an acceptable sacrifice on the altar of our great commission responsibilities to which i would say yeah keller and what's the second uh, commandment in the great commission and teach them to obey all that i have commanded you namely love your neighbor and the unborn is the only neighbor it's legal to kill so anyways i'll get off my soapbox but i get yeah. i get very fired up with keller because i think that most of the rot in evangelicalism and the cultural and political cowardice on the issue of abortion i think he represents sort of the centerpiece of that rot yeah i can see why and that's a very well articulated i hadn't thought of uh keller's treatment of slavery which really by implication what he's talking about isn't slavery of the 1850s it's more the social justice movement now and how christians right. should be involved with that and then comparing that to to abortion um i know uh, when he was outed as being a democrat um mark dever was too actually in the same the, the same right. uh, person had kind of like looked them both up and found that um it, it, yeah his response was very uh disappointing and and it, but it's so after he did that though you had a string of evangelicals make similar arguments. I know David Platt did in his book, Before You Vote. And yeah. he had this whole section, as you've read that book, but he, he talks about how there's a Democrat who stewards their vote well and in a Christian manner by realizing portion, Republicans yeah. really aren't going to do anything about abortion anyway. So we might as well deal with all these other life issues like social justice type issues, poverty, um, more government funding for welfare. And, and, that, and that will be, that's, a moral decision. And of course he writes this two years before Roe v. Wade is overturned. So right. that's the thing that too. And interesting. Yeah. It, it is fascinating. Cause that's what I keep, I I've heard for years is that, you know, and, and I hear it from the establishment evangelicals to some extent, you know, what have the Republicans done for the unborn anyway, we might as well vote Democrat, but obviously there, and there's more than just that there's Mexico city policy. I mean, there's all, all sorts of things Republicans have tried to do to, um, stem abortion um not saying they're perfect and they certainly could have done a lot more when they had power and didn't but but this result has happened um and i wanted to ask yep. you on the other side if you were looking at evangelicalism you'd have establishment evangelicals over here with 50 million different issues or life issues on the other side you have um and this is kind of its own wide group of people but you have abolitionists who right they actually in some ways say similar things about like the gop is never going to or, or we can't count on them. At least I've heard some of that rhetoric. Right. I'm not as familiar, yeah. but um, 
what what do you think about that uh, their position um, when it comes to abortion because there as I understand it a lot of abolitionists see I, I mean I don't even maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong I don't even know how they feel about the Roe v Wade thing because it's not what's acceptable yeah. to some of them is just that it must abolish all abortion immediately and if it doesn't if yeah, it's any right. kind of halfway measure um, like it doesn't ban it in all the states or something, you know, then it's not or on a state level, it doesn't ban it immediately at all levels of development. Then it's it's a compromise. It's evil. Um, people are in yep. sin. So, I mean, how, how strong of a force is, is that uh, in evangelicalism right now? So uh, let me I'll try to um, I'll try to give myself a little bit of authority to speak on this just because uh, I believe I've spoken in more pulpits in evangelical churches since the fall of 2020 on abortion than any pro-life speaker in the world. Um, because I know all the pro-life speakers and I was in a pulpit every week for on a three or four month stretch until my wife said, you need to stop. And that's not because of me. That's because of people like Rob McCoy and Jack Hibbs who put their entire endorsements and uh introductions uh and it helped me get into churches to wake up the church in california at such a decisive moment and so speaking from having spoken in so many churches john um i don't think that immediatism um is the primary dominant authority um i i still think that um most people would say it's it's better to support pro-life legislation that stops short of a total ban then refuse to get that pro-life legislation and wait until you have all the votes for an abortion ban. Therefore, in my opinion, sacrificing savable children now um, so that you can feel very good about your conscience, that you didn't quote unquote conform or that you didn't, you didn't cave, uh, that you were consistent. Um, and so I, now there is a growing movement of immediatists um, who, who refuse to vote for even Trump right, who put those three Supreme Court justices in place that ended up overturning Roe versus Wade, most immediatists I know would say, and would, did not vote for Trump, and would say that it would have been wrong to do so, because they had no reason to believe that he was actually going to pursue banning abortion. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting. Douglas Wilson had an interesting take uh, a few, a couple months before Roe got overturned when we thought it would, right through Dobbs. And, and he had a great line. He said um, that, you know, if it gets overturned, uh, I, he said, I hope I, it would be nice if the immediatists would thank the incrementalists for giving them the opportunity to very quickly uh, uh, secure their goals, which is to ban abortion in Oklahoma, right, or Arkansas or wherever it is, uh, because, hey, now you can do it. Now you can do it faster than you would have been able to do otherwise. But I haven't heard any thank yous from the immediatists whose job is now easier, which I think is very interesting. Um, so I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. Let me just tell you, John, uh, you're going to get some nasty messages for having me on um, okay. because I've, <laughs> I've been criticized. I have blog posts on me and, and podcasts that T. Russell Hunter's done. And, and, and T. Russell will deny this now. Uh, but, you know, Jonathan Von Maren and other pro-life activists who have who have worked with him for a long time, we've been we've been told by him and his followers for a long time on Facebook comments that I guess I should have screenshotted because T. Russell denies it now. He said, show me the evidence. I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't screenshot it all, but we all remember it that I want to keep abortion legal, John, because if I don't, if it, if it ends too soon, I'm not going to have a job. And then I won't have those speaking requests. Like what a disgusting thing to say to someone. Mm. Like I left a successful career in sales to do this full time. 
Um, and so the bummer is that I never doubt the, the intentions or motivations of immediatists, John, I never do, but they do doubt the motivations and intentions of people who do support banning abortion and do support states defying the courts. We just have to talk about what that looks like and where and if that's wise. And that's because abortion is the sacrament of secular progressivism, John. And so it had a state completely right. banned it and you had a governor do it. My, my belief is, is that federal troops would have been sent in by Biden and Kamala Harris to arrest the governor and to arrest any state troopers who tried to shut down abortion clinics. And now you're looking at civil war. Now, the, maybe the immediatists would say, yes, that's exactly right. We need civil war. Mm -hmm. OK, but again, you, you have to stop and pause and say, is that the wise decision? Um, and are, are the rest of pro-lifers ready to take up arms against other Americans and murder and kill them uh, because they're not a, the federal government's not allowing our state to ban abortion? So in principle, I've got no problem with states defying the courts. Lincoln did it. I like DeSantis when he was defying the federal government with vaccine stuff. Um, but we need to be a little bit more winsome. We need to be a little bit more strategical. And I'm still waiting for that. Thank you. Uh, for overturning Roe and, and allowing uh, T. Russell Hunter and three the states to ban abortion in Oklahoma. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's coming. Well, yeah. And the reason I ask is, I mean, I've been for uh, the last few years been introduced more and more to different aspects of the anti-abortion movement and evangelicalism and notice differences. And I'd say within the last probably year and a half, I've been thinking through more um, the abolitionist position and, and it's really positions because there's different camps within abolitionism right. and then uh, uh, the pro-life. And then what, what I knew, I always knew I didn't like was this, like what was what you described Tim Keller advocating. And, um, and, and that just seemed to me like, that's not even a pro-life position. I'm not really sure how that fits into a pro-life position, but right. the, the landscape out there is there's, because we're identifying fake pro-lifers, there's, I, I just know that there is a, a fairly vocal group of people who are, they see almost everyone as a fake pro-lifer. If, if right. there's ever, if you vote for a Republican candidate who isn't committed to ending uh, abortion on day one through executive action or, you know, that kind right. of thing. Um, and yep. so I, I just think Christians need to be aware just to think through that for themselves. I think everyone needs to think through this and whatever you're doing, you need to be involved somehow, I think, even if that's just voting, but, but somehow, um, that's right. You know, do something, pray, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone can do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I think it's people are starting different. to wake up to this, John. I think people are starting to realize the wolves in sheep's clothing in our midst. Yeah. And uh, having spoken in so many churches in the last season and seeing a lot of those churches I've preached in, John, start a pro-life ministry immediate after me leaving. Some of them, those people in those churches start sidewalk counseling within days and start saving unborn children outside praise their God. local abortion center where they had never gone before. Now, now, you know, absolutely praise God, because I don't, I don't know what's, I'm just riding this wave of speaking where I'm, I'm, I've never had this many opportunities and God's using it and people are waking up. And so I think we're starting to hit this breaking point, right? I think the fault lines are more clear than they've ever been before. And people are starting to realize that they've been called to something greater, that they've been called to an uncomfortable Christianity. We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We need to abandon this Tim Keller soft bigotry of the unborn. And people are starting to get God's heart for unborn children. And, and so I think the question that we have to ask ourselves about these fake pro-lifers is this. And actually, we should ask this question of ourselves, John. Do we really believe 
the unborn child is just as morally and intrinsically valuable as the toddler and the adult. Do we really believe that? Because we all tell ourselves, don't we, John, that we would have been abolitionists. Robert P. George, Robbie George, great natural law scholar over at Princeton University. He always shares a story. He says, every semester I ask my law students, for years he's been doing this job, by raise of hands, if you had lived in 1850, how many of you would have been abolitionists? And he says, he's like, it's the funniest thing for years, every student in every class always raises their hand. And of course we chuckle because we realize that wouldn't have been the case. And, and this is because of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, right? We look down our noses at the Christians in the 1850s who allowed these injustices. We look down our noses at the silent pastors in Germany that Bonhoeffer correctly labeled as having um, absorbed a cheap grace, uh, uh, creating a Christ and gospel in their own image to justify their apathy, to keep a place at the table, to keep their cultural respectability. And we look down our noses at these Christians, John, and we go, how could those cheap grace Christians have allowed slavery, have allowed the Holocaust? We allow our own Holocaust. We allow our own lynchings. They're called womb lynchings. And they happen at the tune of a million a year. So do you really believe that it's a baby and that the value is the same? Because I'll tell you what, John, the value is the same to God. And I'll prove it to you right now. In Luke, in the Luke 1, is it Luke 1 and 2? Uh, the word for baby, when when John the Baptist leaps, leaps in Elizabeth's womb, you know what the word is? Berephos. Okay. Berephos mm. using the term to describe the baby in Elizabeth's womb. Next chapter, Mary lays what? Baby Jesus in the manger. Want to know what word the writers of scripture chose to use? Berephos. The same term for the child in the womb and the child outside the womb, therefore teaching us that God sees no distinction. The only question is, does Tim Keller and Ed Stetzer and Russell mm -hmm. Moore see a distinction? And in they do see a distinction because their treatment of these issues is incredibly hypocritical and incredibly different. Yeah. And it tells us that had they lived in 1850s, had they lived in 1940s, far from being part of the confessing church or far from palling around with Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, they would have been the silent shepherds then. Mm. Well, Seth, that uh, that's powerful. Um, everything that you've said, and I'm assuming that you know, in your ministry, you help people organize, uh, give them direction on a pro-life ministry, um, so people can go find you at uh, where would you like them to go? The White Rose Life. Yeah, that if you want to join sort of the new movement that we're building, the White Rose Resistance, the White Rose Life, uh, and then to connect with me, SethGruber.com, and then the podcast is where we talk about everything, just like just like you talk about everything, John. We talk about everything regarding pro life. I I, I bring in other issues because all these issues kind of connect, but the focus is abortion, equipping equipping the Christians and the good people to actually use their voice and speak out and do something, and contending against the culture of death and their arguments and exposing it. So yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us yeah thank you john keep it up bro yep you too bye now this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.